But is he sure he got the right one? <laughs> My name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I'm sober tonight. And that is the single most important thing that I'll tell you this evening. That it is by the grace of a loving God. And his gift of you to me. That I didn't have a drink today. And that isn't so much a miracle, I don't believe, that Bill didn't take a drink today. The miracle is that I didn't want one. And I haven't wanted one for quite a few 24 hours. And that's the miracle. And that is the gratitude that I feel in giving thanks. I have to tell you, I don't, uh, I'm not real big on celebrating Thanksgiving Day as a day. Any more than I'm celebrating, uh, very big on celebrating New Year's Day with New Year's resolutions. Because you see, you have given me a way that I don't have to make resolutions one day of the year to make changes in my life. You've shown me how to make changes every day. And I don't have to have one day of the year to be grateful for what I've been given. I can have a Thanksgiving day every single day of my life. Very early on in this fellowship, you taught me that if I forget to be grateful, I stand to lose this beautiful gift. Um, when I first came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I began to hear talk about what you people called an alcoholic personality. And being the kind of analytical person I was, I wanted to get a handle on exactly what is an alcoholic personality. And I asked 50 or 100 people, and I got 50 or 100 answers none of which made any sense at all to me. Until one old-timer told me a little story that answered my question once and for all of what is an alcoholic personality. And if you've heard this story before, you're going to hear it again. Because I think it's a wonderful story of a little drunk who was walking along the beach one day, and he found half buried in the sand at the edge of the water a bottle. And he reached down and picked it up, and in hopes of uncorking it and finding a few stray drops, he was quite thirsty. It had been a while since he'd had a good drink. He uncorked it. And instead of getting a whiff of what he had hoped would be booze, something very strange happened. There was a puff of smoke, and in an instant there was a fella standing in front of him in the sand that was about nine feet tall with a big turban on top of his head. Well, the little drunk rubbed his eyes, and he looked again, and he looked up, and he was still there. Now, this this little fellow had some bad DTs in his life, but he'd never seen anything like this. It spoke. I am your genie. You have three wishes. What would you like? The little drunk didn't think too long. He said, I'd like to have a bottle of bourbon that's never empty. There was another puff of smoke another instance, and sitting in front of him in the sand was a great big jug. He uncorked it, smelled it. It was the good stuff. He tilted it up, took a good swig, tilted it down and looked at it. It was still right to the top. Little fella tilted it up for about ten seconds. He chugged at it. Boy, that was the good old stuff. Tilted it back down, looked. It was still right to the top. He turned that bottle up for about 35 or 40 seconds, most he'd had in a week. And when he brought it down, it was still right to the top. The genie looked at him and said, is that all right? He said, that's wonderful. He said, you have two more wishes. What would you like? He said, I want two more, just like this one. <laughs> that's an alcoholic personality. 
And I want to tell you tonight, if you'll allow me to take your inventory for just a second, if you understand that story and identify with it, you're probably in the right place tonight. Because I'm going to tell you something. You go out here on the streets of Jonesboro, and you tell that story to somebody that's not one of us, and they look at us kind of, well, if that one's never going to be, why would you? They don't get it. And I got to tell you, I quit a long time ago trying to explain it to anybody. Because those who have not been where I've been can't understand me. And I spent a lot of years with people who didn't understand me. Until God brought me to you. And suddenly I was with people who understood how I thought, how I felt, how and why I acted the way that I did. And for the first time in my life, I felt I belonged and I was home. And that's why I stay here. The story of my, um, what it used to be like, what happened and what it's like now, I have to go far beyond my first drink. Because you see, when I first came to AA, as I was telling Clay as we were riding in from Memphis today, you could have put me on a lie detector and said, Bill, how long have you been drinking alcoholically? And I would have told you a year and a half, two years, maybe two and a half years. Strange thing happens. The longer I stay here, the further back it goes. I now know that I drank alcoholically from the first day that I picked up a drink. The fact of the matter is, I believe with all my heart that I was born an alcoholic. At the age of 15, I began my journey toward becoming a drunk. And it was to be till I was almost 40 before I came just an alcoholic again. And I'm okay with that today. I have no problem with being an alcoholic. Uh, I don't ever want to be a drunk again. But it goes beyond back before my first drink. As a very small child, from my very, very first memory, I felt as though I didn't belong anywhere. I had a lot of friends, but I never felt like I quite fit in. I was insecure, I was afraid, I was timid, I was shy. I had a hard time meeting people, girls. Um, it was a struggle just to, to try to, 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 to fit in with people. When I was 13 years old, I went into uh, the business that I've been in for all of my life, and that's the broadcasting business. At one time, supposedly, supposed to be the youngest disc jockey in the country. And there was the assumption by people who listened to this self-confident-sounding kid on the radio every day that uh, he must have it all together. But you see, they didn't understand. That voice on the radio was somebody else. I had the anonymity of a microphone to hide behind. I wasn't facing anybody. Inside was still that scared, terrified, petrified little boy. And when I was 15 years old, a magic night occurred. Uh... I grew up in a little bitty town up in the northeast corner of the state of Georgia. I mean, little town, little bitty town. Uh, they used to say in my little town of Hartwell, Georgia, that on Saturday night there were three things to do on Saturday night in Hartwell. You could watch them unload the truck at the A&P. You could watch the water tank leak. Or you could go across the state line into South Carolina and buy beer and sit on the banks of the muddy Savannah River and drink. Now, i got to tell you, I did not come to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous from having watched too many water tanks leak. 
When I was 15 years old under peer pressure or curiosity or whatever, a group of friends said, hey, Bill, won't you go with us and have some beer? And I said, okay. We got in the car and drove the 20 or so miles across the state uh, state line into the wet county of uh, Anderson County, South Carolina, and brought some beer and got a case and came back and sat on the banks of the Savannah River in the moonlight. Someone popped a church key into it, handed me a can of Pabst Blue Ribbon. I tilted it up to my mouth and took a big swallow. And it was beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most vile, putrid, horrible, stinking, lousy stuff I had ever put in my mouth. Only drank six that night. (laughs) Got drunk. Got sick. It was horrible. But somewhere between the second and the third beer, something happened. Suddenly, little Billy Sanders wasn't afraid anymore. Suddenly, I was bolder, sexier, smarter, funnier, happier than I'd ever been in my life. I knew I had found a friend. There was something magic in that stinking can. And I began the journey. Little did I know the twists and turns that that friendship was going to take in my life. In high school, I didn't drink all that much because um, in a little town that small, it's pretty hard to remain anonymous and drink, so I had to sneak around and do it on convenient Saturday nights with friends that uh, were as bad about it as I was. <clears throat> but in a few years from then, a couple of years, I was to go off to college, 40 miles away from my home to the big city of Athens and the University of Georgia. And here I hit a college campus where the student population was approximately twice that of my whole hometown. And nobody cared how much little Billy Sanders drank. Nobody paid any attention. So I began to drink every day. I discovered hard stuff and that liquor was indeed quicker. And um, the journey began to accelerate. You know, there are a lot of people that, that talk to you about the wonderful fond memories that they have of their college careers. And I wish that I did. I have some very good memories of my years at the University of Georgia. But uh, there are a lot of them that are very foggy and very hazy. Because I missed a lot of classes. Uh, spent a lot of time in bars. Spent a lot of time with a crowd of people that uh, were about as interested in education as I was. And uh, fretted away, especially the first couple of years of my college career. Got in a lot of trouble in school. Um found out some things about that great university that I didn't like very much. For example, I found out they weren't patriotic at all. They almost kicked me out of school for singing the national anthem. Of course, I was singing it to an empty flagpole in front of the college hospital at three o'clock in the morning. The dean of men came to get me with his raincoat over his pajamas, and he wasn't happy. And there's a tradition at Georgia of ringing the chapel bell after Georgia wins a a ball game. And I almost got thrown out of school for ringing the chapel bell. Of course, it was at 3 o'clock in the morning on Easter Sunday. And the dean didn't come get me that time. The mayor of Athens came. Uh, To show you how bad it got, the dean of men's office at that big 10,000 student campus of the university then, it's about 30,000 now, but uh, they had... Uh, a little bench outside the dean's office that got to be known as the Bill Sanders bench. 
because I sat on it more than anybody waiting to see the dean. And, 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 and it should have been a clue to me that when I would walk into the dean's office having gotten a request to come see him, that his secretary would get up and walk to his door and say, he's here. <laughs> they didn't have to say he who. But that's the way my college career rocked along. In the junior year of my college uh, career at Georgia, I um, had an opportunity to apply for, uh, along with uh, about a hundred other people, for an internship to fulfill a dream of everyone who studied broadcasting at Georgia, and that was to have an internship at the big 50,000-watt Clear Channel, Voice of the South, WSB Radio and Television in Atlanta. Dream I'd had since I was a little kid first starting in the business. And as fate was to have it, my roommate and I got the two internships for that summer to go work for that great station. And I knew then that my life was off and running and couldn't possibly be better. And on a spring day of that year, my roommate and I left Athens in a borrowed a car from a friend and went to Atlanta to check into the station to meet the people we'd be working with to find out about our assignments and what we'd be doing and we went through that station and met all the people that were big celebrities to us and went found an apartment to live in for the summer to make a uh, deposit on it went to a few bars and celebrated and had a good time just thinking life can't get any better than this and after a great day we journeyed back to Athens took the car back to the friend we had borrowed it from and decided to have a few more drinks to celebrate the greatest luck of the greatest two guys in the world. And as I was prone to do when I drank, I'd get a little crazy. No, I didn't get a little crazy. I got loony as a bed bug. To be rigorously honest here. And uh, the friend that we were visiting in his apartment had a big old antique gun collection across, across a wall, about 20 old, uh, very valuable antique guns. And acting the clown that I was, I went over and grabbed one of the old long-barrel coat. 22 pistols down. Again, waving it around, I pointed it at my roommate and said, stick them up. He threw his hands up like Mac Dillon and I pulled the trigger and there was suddenly a sound like thunder. And in a moment, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. A few hours later at hospital in Athens, the doctors were to tell us that Wayne would live, but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. A very strange thing happened in the wee hours of that night in a hospital room in Athens. Wayne reached up from a hospital bed and put his hand on my arm and said, Please don't blame yourself for this. I know it was an accident. It could have just as easily happened the other way. You can't blame yourself. He forgave me immediately. But I didn't forgive me for more than 20 years. And I used it as an excuse to crawl into a bottle and to live. That summer I went on to that uh, great, grand, and glorious job. My roommate spent the summer in a, an Atlanta hospital with surgery after surgery in the vain attempt to try to restore the use of his legs. Unfortunately, it was not to happen. And I began a pattern. I went to work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I would work through my shift through the 11 o'clock news at night, and when the news was over at 11.30, um, a bunch of us from the station, including my old buddy Johnny and others, would go across the street to Riviera Hotel, and we'd settle into the bar and start drinking. And we'd drink until 1 or 2 or 3, sometimes 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning. 
And I'd stumble out of that bar and into a cab and to that lonely apartment, sleep it off until one or two the next afternoon, and then start the same cycle again. The summer that should have been the greatest, most glorious, wonderful learning time of my life was just a cycle of going through the motions. But I made it through the summer. But that fall back in school, within just a few weeks, it all came apart. And I set a plan into motion. I began to go to the college infirmary, and we had three doctors there, and I'd go to see each one of the doctors in turn, and they would, uh, I was telling them I was having trouble sleeping, and they'd give me a prescription for sleep, sleeping pills, and I'd go down the hall to the pharmacy, and I'd get it filled, and the next day I'd come back and go to another one of the doctors, go through the same motion, did that for a period of several weeks until I amassed a pretty good supply. Then I waited till a Friday afternoon when my new roommate was going home from the weekend to visit his family. He had a brand new car and was going to go home and show him the car and spend the weekend with him. And I watched his car pull out of the parking lot of the dormitory and disappear up the street. And I closed the drapes, sat down on the side of the bed, took all the little bottles and emptied them onto the nightstand of what was later determined to be somewhere between 50 and 60 sleeping pills. One by one and two by two, popped them down and swallowed them, turned out the light and pulled up the covers. For more than 20 years, I believed that it was a huge coincidence, that word, coincidence, that my roommate's car, new car, broke down at the city limits of Athens and had to be towed back. And he came into that dormitory room and he saw the bottles on the nightstand and the state I was in and pretty quickly put it together and called the ambulance and had me hauled to the hospital and my stomach pumped out. I say coincidence. Tongue-in-cheek, because tonight I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I love the definition I heard a few years ago of a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. And I believe tonight that that was the first time that the God that I ultimately met through you people looked down and said, Big boy, I'm not through with you yet. And he intervened for the first time, as he did for so many times in this alcoholic's life in the years that were to come. It was after this incident that I began the great American tradition of visiting psychologists and psychiatrists. And I can honestly tell you that I have no idea through the years how many of those individuals that I spent my time and mine and my family's money with. And I would go in and spend hours at a time with them and uh, write checks out to them and then walk out damning them all the way because they weren't doing one thing in this world to help me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not putting them down. I think, I really think there is a good chance that some of them might have been able to help me. Just maybe they might have if I'd ever told them the truth. But you know, those people somewhere between the second, third, or fourth question, they'll say, do you think you might have a drinking problem? And my standard answer was, no, I drink fine. And they'd go off treating something else. And I had some of the best. I had uh, one of the doctors that I went to was uh, uh, one of the doctors involved, if you've ever read the story of the Three Faces of Eve, one of the two doctors involved in that. He may have helped Eve, but he didn't help me. Eventually, I exited the University of Georgia, and I did it with a diploma in hand. Now, I have never been completely sure if I earned it or if they just got fed up. I ain't going to ask, 
because I've gotten to where I like it hanging around, and they might want it back, and I don't want to give it to them. I eventually ended up about uh, 60 miles north of Atlanta working uh, in a radio station, and I knew that uh, I, I, I already began to know that I had a maybe drank too much, and I need to straighten my life out. So I decided I was going to become a pillar of the community. And I got involved in civic club work and Boy Scout work, and I got involved in in uh, going to church and even for a while taught a Sunday school class and I joined the local, uh, as I said, civic organizations and local fraternal organizations that had a club attached to it. And guess where I spent most of my time? At the club. And along the way, I met a beautiful girl, and it wasn't too long till we fell in love, and I thought, I want this girl to be my wife. <clears throat> but I know I need to straighten my life out before I do because uh, she's probably not going to want to put up with the kind of drinking I do. And then I made a wonderful discovery. That girl left the drink just as much as I did. <laughs> and we had an instant uh, love for each other because we'd, after she'd get off her job in the afternoon, I'd get off my job in the afternoon. We'd head for that club about 5.30 or 6, and we'd stay there till 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning and go home. And um, after a while, we got married, continued the same pattern right on after the marriage. And, you know, a lot of people, when they get up in the morning and they go to work, if they tied one on the night before, the person at the next desk or the next machine or maybe at the next office across the hall might look and say, you know, like you had one last night or something. But, you know, the rest of the world doesn't know it. Well, let me tell you something. When you got to sign a radio station on the air at 6 o'clock in the morning, and you got to sound cheerful, when your head feels like the Russian army did maneuvers on it last night, and your mouth tastes like the bottom of a birdcage, that's hell, folks. And it was then that I learned to pray, because I would start a record up once I got the show going and told everybody what a beautiful, wonderful day it was and how we were just going to have just such a great time. And I'd start the music and turn off the microphone and say, Oh, dear God, thank you that this isn't television. <laughs> I would never have pulled it off. But that pattern went for a long, long time, for a lot of years. Um, then my wife, a couple of years later, came along and said, I've got news. We're going to have a baby. And we talked long and hard that we both needed to straighten up. We needed to be a little more domestic and learn how to stay at home more. And after the baby came, we did just that for several weeks. And then we learned about the babysitter. And we were off to the club again every night. And I think it was also along and about this time that the marriage began to crumble. We didn't know it. We didn't see it. But piece by piece, it began to come unglued. I hear people come to AA that talk about their marriages that were in trouble, and they they talk about having problems communicating. And I don't, I didn't understand that because Bill and Marlene Sanders communicated. If you didn't believe it, you could ask our neighbors three doors down the street, and they tell you the Sanders communicate. They could even tell you what we were communicating about, and our communication sessions very often had a very similar pattern to them. Be on a Sunday afternoon, we'd get into a discussion about something, and I could hang in there with the best of them until I perceived that I might be on the losing end of that communication. 
And when I realized I was on the losing end of that communication, I'd grab my bottle of scotch or my bottle of vodka, storm out the back door, slam the door, get in the car, squeal up the driveway, up the street, I'm out of here. Over and over and over and over and over again it happened. You could hear the neighbor say, there he goes. This happened one Sunday afternoon, typical thing, got into our conversation. I realized pretty quick I was on a losing end of that one. Grabbed the bottle, got in the car, squealed out the driveway, headed up the street, I'm out of here. Only one thing different that Sunday afternoon, I still had my pajamas on. Well, my wife did what any sweet, loving, caring, thoughtful wife would do. She called a friend to come get me and bring me home. Only thing wrong with that, the friend happened to be a police captain. Didn't take too long to find me sitting in the, of all things, the parking lot of the Holiday Inn. Sitting there quietly, minding my own business, talking to my bottle. And my police captain friend came up and tapped on the car window. Bill? Hey, Harold. Bill, why don't you come on and go with me? Come on, get in the car and go with me. And I told him he could... I told him, no, thank you. (laughs) And he began to talk to me about his relative size to mine and his Marine Corps wrestling experiences and the impact that the billy club hanging on his side had on the side of an individual's head. And the more he talked, it began to make sense that I might want to consider going with him. Well, I got out of the car and got in his, in the police car, and I was not so drunk that I didn't know that within about two blocks, we weren't headed toward my house. In about two more blocks, we pulled in to the emergency room entrance of the local hospital. And he was around to the side of the car where I was, opened the door, whisked me into that hospital, and before I could blink, I was checked in and upstairs. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. You won't believe how fast you can get checked in the hospital when you already got your pajamas on. They don't want a guy with a vodka bottle in his pajamas sitting around in the lobby. It don't look good. So next time you're worried about filling out all those insurance papers, you just walk in like that. That was also the the first time that I know today that I got into probably the biggest piece of denial that I was to carry the longest time in my drinking career. (coughs) Clay and I talked about riding down here today. I came to AA with a very bad secondary disease. It was a terrible case of the I-nevers. And I had a long list of I-nevers that you people had. And one of the I-nevers, I mean, what good is a drink? Better be a real big drink. (laughs) I still got a thing today. I can be sitting in a restaurant in Atlanta having lunch with somebody, glance over the table over here, and here's some guy that orders a drink. And they bring it, and he sets it down. They set it down there in front of him, and he'll sit there carrying on his business lunch and twiddling around his finger in that drink, taking a few sips, finish lunch, get ready to leave, and there's a half a drink still in that glass. There's a part of me that still wants to chase him out in the parking lot and say, get back in there and finish that and order another one. 
But you see, he don't think like I do. The skies between Atlanta and uh, Washington, that meeting raged in my head. Yes, no, you can, you can't, you shouldn't. You, you know, I even looked around to see if the rest of the passengers were hearing those voices I was hearing. They weren't. Plane touched down at National Airport, out of the plane, into a cab. The meeting's still going. Yes, no, yes, no. The argument's going. Into the lobby of the big Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill in Washington. And into that lobby, and it's a huge, giant atrium lobby. Takes my radar about eighth of a second to find the bar on the other side of that. I could hear the glasses tinkling and the music. Took about ten minutes for me to go check my bags into the room. I mean, I check, check into the hotel, dump the bags into the room. Back down to the lobby, and I came and stood in the door of that bar as the war played out in my head. I stood there for about three or four minutes. And I forgot Doc's admonition. If you get in an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose. And I lost. And I walked over and I sat down at the bar. And the bartender came and stood in front of me and looked at me for just a second. And he smiled and said, hi, pal. How about a Coke? Huh? <laughs> he said, I figured by that lapel pin you're wearing, that's what you'd want. I had forgotten to take off this damned AA pin. <laughs> he set the Coke down, walked down to other bars. The end of the bar served a couple of customers, came back, and I'm still sitting there looking at that Coke. He said, you haven't got any business in here, do you? He said, where you belong is three blocks down the street upstairs over a furniture store. There's a meeting in 20 minutes. Get the hell out of here. I went to that meeting, and that night I did two things. I walked back into a bar at that hotel, and I thanked a bartender for saving my life. And he told me, he said, you know, you weren't in as big a trouble with me as you thought. Because when I saw you standing in the doorway over there for so long, I thought you were looking for somebody. But when you sat down at the bar and I looked and saw that lapel pin, I knew what you were doing. And there was no way in hell you were getting a drink out of me tonight. And the other thing I did that night is I got down on my knees beside a hotel room bed in our nation's capital. And I said, God, if you went to this much trouble to keep me sober tonight, I will never test you again. And I stay out of bars because I don't have any business there. I don't belong there. I don't live there anymore. I belong with you people. You understand me and you take care of me. And I thank God for putting a little alcoholic bartender one more coincidence in this alcoholic's life. Seven years ago, the day after tomorrow, my sponsor, Doc, went on a 12-step call and never came home. He and another alcoholic went to talk with a young drunk that Doc had been working with for several years to try to help him get sober. He just didn't seem to be able not to get it together. 
When they got there, the boy was suicidal and in the struggle over a shotgun, trying to take it away from the boy, it discharged and shot Doc in the stomach. And he died on the way to the hospital. He died doing what he loved doing the most, and that's trying to help another alcoholic. And in the, in the dark hours of the twilight of that evening, sitting in the living room of Doc's home, my world came crumbling down. I said, how can I possibly stay sober? The man who has led me, who has guided me, who has shown me the way through this program is no longer here to guide my path. How can I stay sober? And in the still quietness of that evening, the answer came. Bill, you stay sober by doing the things he taught you to do. And the things that his sponsor taught him. And the things his sponsor taught him. And the things his sponsor taught him. All the way back to that night in the spring of 1935 when the broken down stockbroker and the broken down doctor sat together in the little gatehouse and said, do you think we might be able to stay sober if we help one another? My granddaddy's sponsor in AA died a couple of years ago, nine days after his 40th birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was fond of saying that he believed with all of his heart, and I share that belief, that in 1935, God in his loving infinite wisdom looked down and said, the lowly alcoholic has suffered long enough. I've got to give him a way out. He has been the scourge of the earth, the outcast of society. I've got to give him another chance. And look at what he gave us. He could have decreed that we be locked away, put away from society so that we couldn't destroy the lives that we were destroying. He could have had us locked away in jails and mental institutions, lepers' colonies or what have you. But look at what he gave us. He gave us each other. And he gave us more laughter and more love and more joy and more understanding than most of us had ever experienced in our lives combined. And he topped it off with a loving relationship with him that none of us had ever known. In the days and weeks that were to come, I was to find out something else that Doc had told me. He said, I get more out of this sponsorship thing than you do. And I said, I don't believe that. And in the days and weeks after Doc's death, a bunch of wonderful young guys that I sponsored surrounded me. And they took me to meetings when I didn't want to go. And they made me talk when I didn't want to talk. And they held my hand until I could get back on my feet again. What power there is in this wonderful fellowship of ours. When I came to AA, I didn't know that my wife had had the divorce papers all drawn up. She had found a place to live, and it was a matter of days, if not hours, before she was going to be out of there. But I have to share with you tonight that the marriage didn't end. And on the night that the divorce papers would have been final, on December 30th of 1982, my wife and I stood before the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier. And we renewed our vows. And we started all over again. And I can tell you the last 10 years have been beautiful and they've been wonderful. And I love that woman more than any human being on the face of this earth. 
And I can tell you now that if she hadn't had surgery earlier this month, she'd probably be here with me tonight. But I can tell you that she is at home in Roswell thinking about me sharing with you. And I love her so much. Life hasn't been perfect. We still communicate every once in a while. The neighbors don't hear it like they used to. And we've got sponsors to help us get it back on track. But I have to tell you that one of the greatest gifts of all occurred on the 15th day of February of this year. I took another walk with my little girl. This time it was down the aisle of a church. And oh, how beautiful she looked that day in that long, flowing white gown. She looked like a princess. And her handsome young groom that my wife and I came to love. I worried a great deal about that young man because when we first, the first night that we took him out to dinner, the first thing he did was to order a beer. And then he sat there and nursed that thing for two hours. <laughs> and I told him, son, you ain't never going to make it in my little fellowship. And he won't. A couple of weeks before the wedding, my little girl told me, Dad, at the reception, I want to have the first dance with Paul, my groom. But I want to have the second dance with you. I said, oh boy. <clears throat> I said, Karen, let me tell you something, darling. Back when Daddy was drinking, I danced like a combination of Fred Astaire and John Travolta. I don't dance quite that good anymore. Uh, tell me what music we're going to dance to so that I can practice a little bit with your mom and won't embarrass you and me both. And she said, Dad, I don't want to tell you what the music is. I'd rather not. Hmm. Well, the wedding came off and I cried all the way down the aisle with tears dropping onto my tux. And my little girl stood in front of the same minister that had married her mother and me 25 years before and that had renewed our vows six or ten years ago. And the same minister joined my daughter and son-in-law. But the greatest tears weren't to come until that reception. And I watched my little girl and her handsome groom like a prince and princess on that dance floor. And then the song they sang ended, or they played for them ended. And my little girl came over and stood in front of me. And as several hundred people watched, the music started. And we went out onto the dance floor. And the words of the song were, Did you ever know that you're my hero? And everything I'd like to be. I can fly higher than an eagle. You are the wind beneath my wings. My God, what a miracle. You and God had worked in this family's life. The pain and the wounds you had healed and you had brought us back together again.
I can tell you today that that little girl and I have a wonderful relationship. There are times when my wife can't go with me if I'm traveling somewhere to make an AA talk, she goes with me. And when I stand at a podium and I look out into her eyes, I see love and I see respect instead of the fear and hate. And the little girl that once wrote in her diary, I wish my daddy was dead and maybe my life would be better. Now every day tells me, Daddy, I love you so much. You did that. You and God and this fellowship did that. And I'm going to tell you, folks, there is no high this drunk ever had, even on the best of days, that can touch it. Thanks. That word won't touch it. That's why I say, is it any wonder that tonight I say to you, did you know that you are my heroes and you are everything I want to be and that together, together we can all soar like eagles because God is the wind beneath our wings. My prayer of thanks every day is, dear God, thank you, because I almost missed all this. God bless us all. Thank you.